So we are in Jeremiah, and we finished chapter 6 last time. And in chapter 6, the poetic section, where he says that he is bringing Babylon down. I'll read the last four verses. I have made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron, all of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fierce, the lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver are they called, for the Lord has rejected them. So he's talking, I think, to Babylon here and saying that you are going to be the refiner's fire because I've tried everything short of bringing Babylon down and I can't refine the wickedness out of them. So they are no longer capable of governing themselves. So we'll do it in Babylon. So now we're in chapter 7. And this is a different vignette, chapter 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So we've sort of changed venue a little bit here. In other words, it's a break in section, if you will. And what's going on here is people are standing at the gate of the temple, and they are proclaiming the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. And the idea is God is among us. In other words, we've got all these people coming down from Babylon, and things are getting fierce but we'll go into the house of the Lord and we will say, this is the house of the Lord, which is where we can run for refuge. And notice what he says about this. Verse four, do not trust in these deceptive words. So what he's saying is, this saying, this is the house of the Lord is in fact not true and it's being used to deceive you. Remember we've said before that in biblical Hebrew, Truth is not an artifact of words, it's an artifact of objects. So what they are saying is, this is the temple of the Lord, and they are standing there looking at the first temple. Remember, this is before the Babylonian destruction, so we still have the first temple, the one that Solomon built. What God is saying is, this is in fact no longer the temple of the Lord, even though the physical building is still there. So when someone stands in front of it and says, go into the temple for refuge, you're being misled because there is no refuge to be had there because this is in fact no longer my temple. And the point is important because from a language point of view, they're standing there looking at the building, saying the temple of the Lord. And God is saying, from a truth perspective, those words are not true anymore. Verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. A couple of things. The problem is that they are not doing the things that the Torah considers important. 
So they're oppressing strangers, they're oppressing orphans, they're oppressing widows, they are shedding innocent blood, and they are following after other gods. So no matter what else they do with respect to the law of Moses, if they're doing that stuff, everything else that they do is a waste of time. In other words, they can be eating beef and turning their nose up at pigs. They could be shooing a mother bird away from his nest before they gather the eggs. They could be building parapets around the tops of their houses. In other words, all sorts of stuff in the law of Moses that you're supposed to do. You can do all of that perfectly, but if you are oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, if you're shedding innocent blood, or if you're going after idols, all the rest of that stuff is a waste of time. In God's economy, the five things that I've just listed are right up there. The fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow are poster children for people with no power. So if you treat people with no power badly, because you can, in other words, we have all the power, you have none, so we can take advantage of you or treat you any way we want to, and that's the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow, because they don't have any support structure. So you got to do well by them. Second thing is you can't shed innocent blood, which is to say murderer. And then the third thing, of course, is you can't go after idols. So treating the powerless well, not shedding innocent blood, and not going after idols, if you do those three things well, it's my humble opinion that you can eat all the ham you want, and that's not a good thing, but God's not going to throw you out of the land. In other words, those are the building blocks of a society that God finds pleasing. All the other stuff, not eating pigs and making parapets around you, all that other stuff is God's way of saying, these are things that you should also do, but if you haven't got those three basics down, it doesn't matter how much other stuff you do. Now, one other thing, and I'll move on. I'm now in verse 6, and in the last one. If you do not follow other gods to your own hurt. Now, one of the things that I have been saying all along, and Jeremiah has been saying, is following after other gods is following after something that is false. You are looking to something that is not God for something that you should be getting from God. And if you do that, it will harm you. Ultimately, it will harm you because you're finally going to tick God off because you've violated his covenant and it gets personal with him. But in the short term, it's to your own hurt because it leads you to places where the society that you have is no longer going to be pleasing. The worship of idols is the worship of power. You go to an idol because you think an idol is going to give you a better deal than God's going to give you. And what you're worshiping there is ultimately power. And when you start worshiping power, the first thing that happens is the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow get run over because all the relationships between people are based on power. They're not based on the love of God. And what happens then is your society goes downhill and it starts off with idol worship and it winds up in human sacrifice. It's just a matter of where you are in that continuum because ultimately that's where it winds up and that's what happened with Israel. They were sacrificing their children and doing all sorts of other stuff. Down to verse 7. Then only will I let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers for all time. This is if you do not oppress and so forth. And this for all time is Adolam. 
And if you come at this from a Greek perspective, forever means forever. That's not what it means in Hebrew. Adolam simply means for a long time, as in a really long time, not two hours versus 20 minutes. It's a considerable span of time, but it is not eternal in the Greek sense. Verse 8, see, you are relying on illusions that are of no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and sacrifice to Baal and follow other gods whom you have not experienced? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these abhorrent things. Do you consider this house which bears my name to be a den of thieves? As for me, I have been watching, declares the Lord. Again, this requires a little unpacking, unfortunately. Verse 8, see you are relying on illusions that are to no avail. In other words, all of these things that you think are important and that you are worshiping are in fact false. And reality is about to catch up with you. You can only do what's false for so long before the real world reaches out and snaps your shorts. And what God is saying is that time is here for you now. Now the second thing, a den of thieves. A den of thieves, or a better way to say that, is a hideout. And what it's being said there, when a thief runs to a hideout, he does not go there to repent. He goes there to escape punishment escape the law, and be safe so that he can go back to robbing again later. So when God says, you have turned my temple into a hideout, what he's saying is, you have done all these abominations, and now you run to my temple, and you cry, we're safe! But you don't come there with repentance. You don't come there intending to change your ways. You simply flee there for safety, just as a thief would flee to his hideout, for safety from the police. There is no intention to repent. Verse 12. Just go to my place in Shiloh. Shiloh, of course, is where the tabernacle was during the time of the judges. Just go to my place at Shiloh, where I had established my name formerly, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you do all these things, declares the Lord, and though I spoke to you persistently, you would not listen, And though I called you, you would not respond. Therefore, I will do to the house which bears my name, on which you rely, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, just as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my presence, as I cast out your brothers, the whole brood of Ephraim. What he's obviously saying here is, you think this is forever? You think this is a safe hideout? Go look what happened to Shiloh. Fixing to happen here. Verse 16. As for you, Do not pray for this people. Do not raise a cry of prayer on their behalf. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. God's talking to Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, don't bother praying. It's a waste of bandwidth. I'm not listening. 17. Don't you see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather sticks. The fathers build the fire. And the mothers need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour libations to other gods to vex me. Is it me they are vexing, declares the Lord? It is rather themselves to their own disgrace. Assuredly, thus said the Lord God, my wrath and my fury will be poured out upon this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field, the fruit of the soil, it shall burn with none to quench it. 
What this is saying is the idolatry is pervasive throughout the entire society. So the little kids run around and gather sticks. The dads take the sticks and build the fire. The mothers mix the dough and stuff and they make cakes and they make them to the queen of heaven. By the way, who's the queen of heaven? Would you believe Mary? Mary is regarded by the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, and the Orthodox Church as the queen of heaven. That's her title. What I'm saying is this concept of the queen of heaven has been around a long time. The latest place that that title has been placed is on Mary. But there has always been a queen of heaven, and it's always been idolatrous. Verse 21. Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat. For when I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offering or sacrifice. But this is what I commanded them. Do my bidding, that I may be your God and you may be my people. Walk only in the way that I enjoin you, that it may go well with you. Yet they did not listen or give ear. They followed their own counsels, the willfulness of their evil hearts. They have gone backward, not forward, from the day your father left the land of Egypt until today. And though I kept sending all my servants, the prophets, to them daily and persistently, they would not listen to me or give ear. They stiffened their necks. They acted worse than their fathers. So starting off, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat. And remember, the temple sacrificial system is going on. They're doing the daily sacrifices, they're doing the festivals, they're doing all the forms of stuff. And God says, hey, you know those sacrifices you're bringing? Go eat it yourself. That's what it says. Because it's doing you no good with me. Uh, go up to 19. Is it me they are vexing? In other words, with all of this abominable stuff, are they bothering me? Is it me they are vexing, says the Lord? It is rather themselves to their own disgrace. Just like it said back in the paragraph before, you're following other gods to your own hurt. So consistently throughout these three paragraphs, it's saying, yes, idolatry is something that I don't approve of, but understand that the first problem is it's harming you. It isn't hurting me. And again, this goes back to the thread that's been flowing through here. If you worship something false, it is going to fail you. So if I were to build a bridge out of paper and it looked really good and I painted it steel color and painted little rivets on it and all that kind of stuff and it looked like a really good bridge, it is not a true bridge. And if you walk on it, you're going to fall in the pit. And that's what God is saying here about these idols. They look good, looks like it ought to work, but it's ultimately false and it will ultimately cause you to fall. Satan pays off up front, God pays off at the end. Sin's fun, right? When you sin, you get all your fun up front, and then you pay for it on the back end. With God, you pay for it on the front end, and the joy and the pleasure and the benefit and the blessing come at the end. It's like you know, sowing crops. You've got to work hard at the beginning, and then at the end you get a harvest. That's the way it works with God. With Satan, you get the fun up front, and the disaster follows. 27, maybe? You say all these things to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not respond to you. Then say to them, this is the nation that would not obey the Lord their God, that would not accept rebuke. Faithfulness has perished, vanished from their mouths. Another theme that's been going down through here is it is not the case that they have been abandoned by God because every step of the way that they have taken from coming out at Exodus 
to get to where they are now, God has sent prophets and ministers and people trying to talk to them, trying to get them to turn around. He's done things like turn the rain off. Big drought. Huh, wonder why we have a drought. Maybe it's because we're not walking with God. Maybe it's because in Deuteronomy he says, if you don't walk with me, I'll turn the rain off. Huh, the rain's off. So what God is saying is, as you have walked this path to get where you are, I have tried to get your attention. I have done everything I said I was going to do in my prophecies. I have sent you prophets to speak directly to you. I have done everything that I can to get you not to be where you are, but this is where you are, and now this is what i got to do about it. Verse 29. Shear your locks and cast them away. Take up a lament on the heights. For the Lord has spurned and cast off the brood that provoked his wrath. For the people of Judah have done what displeases me, declares the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name, and they have defiled it. And they have built the shrines of Topeth in the valley of Ben-Hanom to burn their sons and daughters in fire, which I never commanded, which never came to my mind. 32. Assuredly a time is coming, declares the Lord, when men shall no longer speak of Topeth or the valley of Ben-Hanom, but of the valley of slaughter. And they shall bury in Topeth until no room is left. The carcasses of this people shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, with none to frighten them off. And I will silence in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and voice of the bride, for the whole land shall fall to ruin. So what he's saying here is measure for measure. You sacrificed your children there. Your corpses are going to stack up down there so high that nobody's going to be able to bury them. One thing about God, which is good and terrible, is it's measure for measure. Chapter 8. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, of its officers, of its priests, of the prophets, and of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be taken out of their graves and exposed to the sun, the moon, and to all the host of heaven, which they loved and served and followed, so that they turned and bowed down. They shall not be gathered for reburial. They shall become dung upon the face of the earth, and death shall be preferable to life for all that are left of this wicked folk in all the other places to which I shall banish them, declares the Lord of hosts. So he's saying is one of the things that's going to happen is the place is going to be destroyed and all the graves are going to give up their bones. There are proper ways to deal with what used to be a person and there are defiling ways to deal with what used to be a person. And what God is saying is instead of doing it properly, which is bury them in a tomb and so forth, that's all going to be just dumped out on the ground and nobody's going to collect them there. You're going to be utterly disdained and disrespected. Verse 4. Say to them, thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not get up again? If they turn aside, do they not turn back? Why is this people, Jerusalem, rebellious with a persistent rebellion? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. So what he's saying is, in the natural, when a man falls down, he gets up. When he goes off the path, he comes back. Jerusalem is not so. They persist in their rebellion and they cling to deceit. That's key. They cling to their deceit. They refuse to turn loose of it. Verse 6. I have listened and heard. They do not speak honestly. No one regrets his wickedness and says, what have I done? They all persist in their wayward course like a steed dashing forward in the fray. 
you know, you cannot go to war on a mule. You know why? Mules are too smart. They will not charge into an opposing enemy line because they look at that and say, I, I could get hurt, and they won't do it. Horses will. They are impulsive, impetuous, and you can get them to straight into something that's going to hurt them or kill them. I mean, that's why the cavalry uses horses, because a horse can be made to charge into something that is going to result in its own death. So the metaphor here is Israel is like a war horse. They are charging without thought into something that is going to cause their destruction. Verse 7. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove, swift and crane, keep the time of their coming. But my people pay no heed to the law of the Lord. He's saying that the natural order which I created just works. The birds migrate when they're supposed to migrate. They nest when they're supposed to nest. All of that stuff just works. Well, the equivalent there to my people is the Torah. And my people are ignoring the Torah Whereas the, quote, dumb beasts, unquote, don't ignore the natural laws that I also put into place. And that's the problem with being human, is we have the ability to ignore, for a while, natural law. And that's what all this is saying. You've got the ability for a while to ignore it. But eventually, the world is going to pull you up short, and that's about to happen to them. And I, I quite frankly believe that's about to happen to us. Verse 8. How can you say we are wise and we possess the instruction of the Lord? Assuredly, for naught has the pen labored, for naught the scribes. The wise shall be put to shame, shall be dismayed and caught. See, they reject the word of the Lord, so their wisdom amounts to nothing. So what he's saying is, everybody here goes to church. Everybody here reads the books that guys like Max Lucado and you know all of these Christian writers, they read all those books. They read anything on spirituality. They're reading this stuff. They care, but they're not reading the truth. And, and I'm not speaking badly about Max Lucado. I'm, I'm simply using him as an example. One of the few Christian authors I know. C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. Pick your favorite Christian author. These people are reading all this stuff, and they're saying, yeah, we know the word of the Lord. We're doing what God says. And God is saying, no, you're not. You're being deceived. You're following after things that are not important to the neglect of the things that are. And by the way, in my humble opinion, the greatest lie that Satan has ever perpetrated on humankind is the Christian notion that one sin is just like another. One sin, you're a sinner. You know, you've heard that. Doesn't matter how small it was, doesn't matter how good you are, one sin, you're a sinner, and you're going to hell. That's nonsense. What God says is, do you take care of the people who are powerless? Do you not go after idols? Do you not shed innocent blood? Those are the important things. I don't care how many other things you do, those are the important things, and if you don't do those, then you've got a problem no matter how good you are or anything else. And I will gently suggest that a lot of our churches are preaching things that God says in His Word. Don't do those. And it doesn't matter how good they are in everything else. If you neglect those three things, God just sort of looks at you and says, you don't get it. Ten. Assuredly, I will give their wives to others and their fields to dispossessors. For from the smallest to the greatest, 
They are all greedy for gain, priest and prophet alike. They all act falsely. They offer healing offhand for the wounds of my people, saying, all is well, all is well, when nothing is well. Do you see what he's saying there? The religious people are dealing platitudes to the people and saying it's going to be all right. We are the chosen people of God. God will protect us. It'll be okay. It'll all come out right in the end because God's with Israel. God's on our side. You know, all these religious platitudes and what God is saying, no, I'm not. And he's sending a prophet to say that. No, I'm not. They're lying to you. Why are they lying to him? They're all greedy for gain, which is what it said in the previous verse. They are looking at their 401k. They are looking at their retirement. They are looking at number of butts in the pew. And they are saying, if I say something that's unpopular, my bottom line is going to suffer. That's what this is saying here. So what he's saying is the religious people are leading the flocks that they have been given to tend to slaughter. I don't have any problem with pastors being paid and any of that kind of stuff. I mean, nothing wrong with that. It's when it becomes their sole focus and they concern themselves with crafting the message that they are given to maximize the number of sheep in the fold instead of crafting the message to tell the truth. To a preacher, money can be a trap that way. It isn't always. There are lots and lots of really good preachers that get paid and tell the truth. So verse 11 again. They offer healing offhand, which is to say casually, for the wounds of my poor people, saying all is well, all is well, when nothing is well. They have acted shamefully. They have done abhorrent things, yet they do not feel shame. They cannot be made to blush. Assuredly, they shall fall among the falling. They shall stumble at the time of their doom, said the Lord. 13. I will make an end of them, declares the Lord. No grapes left on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, the leaves all withered. Whatever I have given them is gone. And remember we talked about this a couple, three weeks ago. The physical bounty of Israel was a gift of God. And that physical bounty was piled up during times when Israel was walking with God. Now that they've stopped walking with God, that physical bounty was still there. But now what they're doing is they are consuming it instead of maintaining it and adding to it. So what God is saying here is whatever I have given them is gone, which is to say they have consumed it all without replacing it because of the corruption of their society, and now it's all gone, which is what we're doing. This country has turned to consuming the bounty which was built up in our first 200 years and we have now stopped contributing to it and have now simply turned to consuming it. That's what all this deficit spending is. That's what all the welfare spending is, is people have discovered that they don't have to work. They can simply vote themselves stuff out of the bounty that has been accumulated over years of walking with God. Verse 14, why are we sitting by? Let us gather into the fortified cities and meet our doom there. For the Lord our God has doomed us. He has made us drink a bitter draft because we have sinned against the Lord. We hoped for good fortune, but no happiness came. For a time of relief, instead there is terror. The snorting of their horses was heard from Dan. At the loud neighing of their steeds, the whole land quaked. They came and devoured the land and what was in it. 
the towns and those who dwelt in them. So what they're saying is the Babylonians are coming down from north to south. Let's retire to the cities. God has doomed us. We might just as well be comfortable. 17. Lo, I will send serpents against you, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. When in grief I would seek comfort, my heart is sick within me. So this is Jeremiah. When in grief I would seek comfort, my heart is sick within me. Jeremiah, having spoken what God told him to speak, is sick to his stomach. Verse 19. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king within her? Why then did they anger me with their images, with alien futilities? So what he's saying is, I used to live in Zion. I used to be their defense. I used to be the refuge that they could come to. Why did they take that place of safety and destroy it by angering me with idol worship? Hark, the outcry of my poor people from the land far and wide. Harvest is past, summer is gone, but we have not been saved. Because my people is shattered, I am shattered. I am dejected, seized by desolation. Is there no balm in Gilead? Can no physician be found? Why has healing not yet come to my poor people? Oh, that my head were water, my eyes a font of tears. Then would I weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. I take this as being Jeremiah. It could also equally be God. But I think Jeremiah is maybe a little better. And this last thing, you know, oh, that my head were water, my eyes a font of tears. In other words, oh, that my head were full of water so that I could never stop weeping. I wouldn't run out of any water. So, we're not going to have time to start chapter 9. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.